0: Hello and welcome to the final Ulster Rugby Roundup of the season Joining me, Gareth Hammett, to look back at the longest campaign in history Our brother, hello Jonathan Hi. Is it four? Oh good, just happy to have finally reached the end
1: Holidays are in sight And uh, the man who's liked the holiday, Richard Mulligan <laughs> Yeah, you're right I'm enjoying about 20, 21 degrees here at the minute, guys. Um, I have a non-alcoholic Koppelberg cooling in the freezer there, so um, I'll get the hit maybe by the time we're halfway through this. Good to see the both of you guys, and of course, Gareth, we, we did enjoy a bit of social distancing contact last week at Port Stewart Golf Club. That's it, absolutely, and uh, lost the money to uh, Baker. And lost you the just? money to Baker again, yes, found bandit. Sickness. Dick Turpin wore a mask,
0: but that isn't even funny anymore because we all have to wear masks during this pandemic, <laughs> <don't we? laughs> Very good. So, uh, yes, so the season began when the start of October, but really the middle of August, if you include the tacked-on end to the previous campaign. So it's been a long stint for the players and the reporters as well, of course. So we'll discuss the highs and lows of all that, and we've got Saturday's win over Edinburgh to look back to. But... First of all, we should deal with the most recent news week that we've had and that was Ulster's End of Season Awards. So, Personality of the Year was Ian Henderson. Probably no shock now. Could uh, somebody just outline what, because ex- this is obviously separate to the Player of the Year Awards, could somebody just outline what exactly you do to become Personality of the Year? To become a Lion's a good start?
2: Yeah, well, in Ian Henderson's case, you Captain Ireland and you become a Lion for the second time. So, the Personality Award normally goes to just somebody for something like that basically like somebody who's leaving or somebody who's retiring or somebody who's done something especially noteworthy i suppose so i suppose there wasn't one last year i think the year before it went to worry
1: best possibly worry best and iron cave is that possible did they share it yeah does have
0: half, half
1: ring a bell I think from memory, yeah. I, th- I think too what they try to look at is—I mean, I know from previous experiences—it's somebody who also brings a bit of a contribution on and off the field as well to the whole kind of setup. And I suppose Ian Henderson's well placed to to do that sort of thing. He's amicable to people on and off the field. Um, yeah. The fans like him, and uh, but yes, captain in Ireland and certainly a Lions selection would um would probably take a couple of boxes, all right. Absolutely. So. Uh... No complaints in that department. Now,
0: where the the debate will no doubt begin, were the uh, Player of the Year awards. Now, there were three different ones and the Young Player of the Year award all went to different people. So the Ulster Rugby Supporters Club, they named John Cooney their Player of the Year. The Rugby Writers Player of the Year award was Nick Timoney. And the Player of the Year that's voted for by the coaching team went to Alan O'Connor, Young Player of the Year, James Hume. Now, Jonathan, we have spoken in the past about your uh, record of uh, voting for Player of the Year and how the player you vote for never wins. I'm not sure you know how to cast your vote correctly. I don't know what's happening, but does that change this year? No, it didn't. Um,
2: (laughs) I like to cast, you know, first of all, there's no point just going along with the crowd and voting for what everybody else votes for. So who did you vote for? I voted for James Hume on the basis that I had James Hume number one and Nick Timoney number two. Nick Timoney, obviously, won. I had Mike Laurie number three. So the Writers Player of the Year takes in, I suppose, performances and the way that I always do it as well is just how helpful or friendly players are in the media plays into it (laughs) as well. Yeah. To sort of make the distinction between the Straight Player of the Year award. but um, Okay. Thankfully, thankfully, this year an awful lot of those young players that have played really well are also very helpful in terms of their press conferences. Like they're very willing to engage and sort of open up on a wide variety of subject matter. So I put um, James, Hume, Timoney, and Mike Laurie all into that uh, all into that category, as along with a few others. Um, it has to be said, but really, when it came down to separating between, I suppose, the three of them. My rationale was that James Hume has played basically the entire season from start to finish, whereas even when we were talking to Nick last week, as he pointed out, he's played well since January or, well, the last week of December, but he also wasn't getting a look in at the start of the season. Like this season has been one of two halves for him where he was actually out of the team for longer than he'd ever been out of it before, or since making his debut anyway, and then had an amazing second half of the season, whereas Hume maybe didn't win as many Man of the Match awards or anything like that, but was consistent throughout the season. And as much as Nick Timony filled the void that was left by Marcel Katsia in a massively timely fashion, because his form basically coincided with the announcement that Katsia was leaving before his injury. Like if you had said before the season that Luke Marshall was barely going to play, Lou Ludic was barely going to play, Will Addison was barely going to play, And then just how much time Matt Fadis wasn't going to be playing and how many games Stuart McCluskey would have missed through Ireland, Judy. You would have been sat there wondering who's actually going to play in the centre. But the way that it panned out, like, we barely even talked about any issues in the centre because it was just a case of Stuart Moore, James Hume, and McCluskey when he was back from Ireland basically just filled those two positions all season. And there was no worry about them at any point really, was there?
0: No, no, you make a strong case for uh, for James Hume. Now, Richard, who did you vote for? Are you going to uh, give us an alternative view to that?
1: I, haven't listened to Jonathan now, I wish I had have uh, voted for James Hume because uh, Jonathan has made an ex- an ex- an excellent case
0: for it. Is a secret, um, Johnny, you need to host the Zoom call and just explain your thoughts and then encourage the other writers and then maybe you'll. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I need to do more canvassing for my selections.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna con- I'm gonna consult with I'm gonna consult with Jonathan next season. <laughs> Definitely. Um, well. Not really a big surprise. I, uh, I I did have Nick Timoney as my first choice, and I, and I didn't have one back in my selections at all. I'm a very much a forward forward dominant type guy, you know, <laughs> having X Hooker and all that there, you know. <laughs> I just felt that that Nick just his overall game progress from previous, and as Jonathan said, that he did step up to the mark um, when players were missing and whatnot, and and I, I just thought his general. His general physique has improved this year, his pace. Um, and that was the reason why I, why I basically went for him. And as I say, I was very, very forward-dominated in my selections. Um, but, you know, having heard Jonathan's arguments there, I'm kind of thinking... You know what, I probably I probably should have given James Hume a bit more consideration. Um, maybe two votes would have got James over the line, Jonathan. You don't, we don't actually Yeah, like, know. there's not that
2: many of us that vote for these things. That's why it's so shocking that my number one didn't even make the top three. Like, you really have to be going against the grain in terms of popular thinking for that to happen.
1: You do, definitely. There's no question about it. But, no, for me, Nick... Nick just stood out, in, in in most of the games that I had that I had spotted him playing, you know, and, and that's that's what gave me the nudge for him, you know. So here were your two and three, Richard. Uh, I had Rob Herring and Jordy Murphy in there. Oh well, okay. okay. I'm not sure which order. I, mean, I would probably need to check my WhatsApp to see which it was, but those were the other two that I had. Yeah.
0: So what was the make the case for those two then? They they obviously didn't get
1: the much like Mike Lowry didn't get anything on the night. Jordy Mur- well, I, th- I think Rob Herring just had a superb season all around. All Cons- a very, very consistent player. And I think Jordy Murphy stepped up. He captained the team. He led them well. He led the example. Um, as Jonathan says, he's also very good at press conferences. Um, and Rob's also very, very good at the, at, at the press conferences too. So that was why I included them in it. And I, I didn't say I didn't have a back in it, but I suppose if there was a back, GM Hume would have probably mm-hmm. been one of the ones to the forefront.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I would have had Jordi fourth again just for the same rationale of like his form, I suppose came later in the season and then he hasn't played that much until in the tail end of the season. Not that it's really mattered. But in a way it worked out well because it meant that the awards were all won by a different player. And I think in recent years we've had like John Cooney winning everything. I think in two of the last three years. And in the year that he didn't win everything, Stuart McCluskey won everything. So like the variety and spread this year, you know, at um it's made for more interest more interesting uh an interesting thing to write and read about anyway I suppose
0: El no I'd be debating now who is the actual player of the year um between themselves probably but uh one man that you well you did just mention there in regards to previous year but John Cooney, the supporters player this season again it's interesting the the different uh like different awards going to different people and the different thinking behind the different awards so why do you think John uh gets the
1: the supporters vote? I think he's just such a huge favourite with the fans, and he he opened up about the mental side of the side mm-hmm. of things during the year, and the way he spoke about helping somebody else out, and and that type of thing. He's also he's probably got to be a bit of a sympathy vote too with the Irish situation amongst the fans. The fans have Ulster fans, and certainly other uh, provinces fans are, are surprised that he never actually got the opportunity with Ireland. But he's just been a consistently good performer. I mean, once. Once he came back from lockdown, there was a bit of a shakiness there, but he put that all behind him. He put the Irish disappointments behind him and he he just went out and he's just an all-around nice guy and and, and the fans do relate to that. I was surprised, though, that Michael Lowry didn't maybe get the supporters Mm. award given the fact that he's the one that they've talked about so much this season and he didn't feature at all, which I didn't think was overly surprising, but others may or others will think differently. Mm. But um, I think, John, just fans relate to him. It's interesting
2: I'll- to see just on Instagram as well today, but, you know, John Cooney saying that it was his uh, his most difficult season by a stretch and that for him, there were an awful lot of lows and very few highs. So um, it's interesting to get his own perspective on the mm-hmm. season, but like there were some real standout games from him. Like I think about, I suppose, back to that uh, Northampton game and the turnaround in the second half in
0: particular. Like, so, you know, he, he did have some very good moments too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I'll know Connor then. Um Gets the the coaches' vote. Obviously, you like you hacks don't really know what you're talking about. The fans don't have the expertise that the coaches have. This is the real one, isn't it? This is the one that matters. If the coaches say he's player of the year, he's player of the year.
1: I think Alan, um, he just gives us all in the Ulster shirt every time he goes out, and he's he bullies other players in a good way. You know, on the pitch, he makes his presence felt. He's a leader as well, you know, and he, he, he plays with his heart on his sleeve and he'll, 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 he probably is one of the, one of the players who, when they're standing under the post, haven't conceded a try, will be one of the ones that will be galvanizing the team, right boys, come on, this is not good enough from us, we need to be better and, and they will respond to him. Um, and, he gets through an awful lot of work. I mean, when you're watching the game, it's only when you watch a game two or three times. I don't know how often Johnny or you will watch an Ulster game afterwards, but you watch a game afterwards, maybe look at your notes. Maybe you've made a note about something during the game, but you look at the amount of work that Alan puts in, probably not just in the game, but in the preamble up to the games of training and whatnot. And those are the things that coaches will see that we won't see. Um, and the way he maybe works with younger players or encourages that type of thing. I think Alan just is one of those all-around performers that, that gives us all. I'm not saying the rest of them don't, but he just seems to give us all and, and wears his heart on his sleeve. Yeah, no, absolutely. So
0: we do have a question uh, surrounding this one from Stuart K. Martin, who says, it's great to see Alan O'Connor win the player of the season. Are there any other players that you think don't quite get the recognition they deserve at Ulster?
2: Yeah, like Alan O'Connor was always the popular answer for that question and Sean Reedy as well but um, they probably do get quite an awful lot of acknowledgement now because uh, um, as I think has been joked about before in the podcast, they were talked about for being underrated for so long that um, they can't really qualify for that title anymore.
0: Um, Definitely not when you're Player of the Year. That's that, uh, I, Certainly not. River. Like You can't be an underrated
2: Player of the Year surely. <laughs> I'd say maybe John Andrew. Like, if you think about the season that John Andrew's had, it hasn't really been talked about that much but He's always performed very well. Obviously, like the try count jumps out as the beneficiary of Ulster's strong mall this year. But um, just in his all around play, like you think about it, you think back to that first game out of lockdown um, against Connaught. Like Adam McBurney started that game when Rob Herring was injured. So John Andrew really came into this season as the third choice hooker and with an awful lot of talk about Tom Stewart. But Rob Herring played less for Ulster this year um, than he ever has before, I would imagine, just obviously Mm. as a product of playing for Ireland so much. And again, it was an absence that if you had pointed it out at the start of the season, you would have said that could be an area where Ulster really struggle. Whereas, really, for much of the Pro 14 season, like John Andrew again, just sort of stepped up and um, showed everybody what he could do, really.
1: Yeah, agreed, John. I thought John Andrew had an exceptional season this year. And, you know, you, you make the argument with, if you think back to Rory Best and Rob Herring, Rob Herring was the second choice, and he eventually he was recognised by Ireland as being as, as good as he, as he is. And John Andrews is in that medal now, um, you know, in the same way. And, and I, know, I know that Leinster fans will, they're all pushing Callagher. But I think John, if he was given an opportunity... Maybe in the summer, you don't know. Um, would certainly, I suppose, when you are the second choice, it um, he's been mostly first choice this year, as you pointed out, John. The other player, the other two players, probably Stuart McCloskey, I think, who is another one, doesn't get half the mentions that he deserves to get all the time, and Billy Burns, I thought this season was um top rate for Ulster and played for Ireland too, as we know. Um, I think he just needs to become a bit more vocal. He was a bit vocal during the Edinburgh game with the referee, um, but I think he needs to be a bit more vocal on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And I know from watching him, from being at some of the games and listening, he's one of the players that you would like to probably hear more of on on the pitch. That's just my top worth yeah. there, Garth. Yeah. Okay, good. well, you
0: bring us on to the Edinburgh game. Richard, the final one of this season more Ian Madigan heroics. Ulster won 34-31 then, thanks to Ian Malian's late kick. But the big talking point, controversy, we love it. Edinburgh's late try, allowed to stand by the referee who's been Whitehouse. That was after uh, Michael Lowry was, was hitting the build-up. Don't and looking back, what are your takes on the non-card decision where Lowry went off with the HIA? The tackler was low. But still hit him in the head with force.
1: Seriously, a yellow, a yellow surely? He says, I don't know anymore. Yeah, it's, I thought the Larry's yellow card was probably the most ridiculous yellow card I've seen this season. Um, he clearly accidentally <laughs> kicks the ball <laughs> as he's coming away. On the tackle, yeah, I could see all the arguments that the mitigation they were making and all the rest of it, it was still head contact and he went off with an HIA. So therefore, I think it was it was definitely a penalty. Um, yellow card, because there was contact with the head, I think it had to be a yellow card. I mean, if that's what the laws of the game are saying and you have to protect the players. And yes, you can see the mitigation that uh, Ben Whitehouse went through. And I have to say, Ben is a, a decent referee and his father, Nigel, was an even better referee. I think he got that he got those two decisions wrong on that time. And I think the TMO tried to help him a bit more by because the TMO did say, but there is head contact. You can clearly hear him saying that. And again, I'm one of these people who is supportive of a referee who stands by his decision sometimes because I've seen it too often where a TMO will interfere. I think a TMO can interfere too much, but I think the TMO was right on this time and highlighting it to him. And I think Ben maybe got it wrong on this occasion.
0: So obviously, Jonathan, the situation was that it was Ulster's second captain's challenge of the evening that they'd asked him to, to have a, a really good look at this. And um, how does he come back and let that go and let the, the try stand? Yeah, well, it's
2: one of those things where I think he obviously explained it at the time, just that he saw it as a rugby incident because the tackle meant that Larry was on his knees and the tackler couldn't have got any gotten any lower. The issue comes with it, I suppose, being judged that it's not foul play because the mitigation aspect of it really comes in to mitigate down from a red to a yellow in terms of that dipped contact, whereas I suppose the controversy comes from the fact that Ben Whitehouse, a judge that there was no foul play whatsoever. And it comes back to what we talked about time and time again. Nobody can judge intent really because it's impossible apart from the player making the tackle to know what the intent is. But if intent doesn't come into it, then you have to look at the result. And the result was head contact, whether the player got low in the tackle or not. And it's another one because we saw the same thing in that Leinster game in Ravenhill this idea about is the fact that Mike Lowry is a couple inches shorter than your average rugby player working against them in these instances. Like is that seen as mitigation because it's contact to his head is no more or less dangerous than contact to somebody's head if they're the height of Devon toner. Yeah. And it's just something that, it's something that probably, I think you can tell what people expected it to be given the amount of people on, well, first of all, on the commentary team and then on social media, just assuming that that try wasn't going to stand on the basis of looking at the one replay and the sort of general surprise that uh, the try then was allowed to stand. And I suppose it's one of those things that you probably would have heard an awful lot more about it. Had, for me,
1: some, try sorry, some had,
2: Just had, had Madigan not in the mm-hmm. end won the game. It's something you would have
1: heard an awful lot more about. I think Johnny, it's as you say there, I mean, and you probably see it when you're watch, watching the games too. You, you'll see a, a Tackle on somebody in, in, in real time at the moment, and you'll go, Oh, that's going to be a yellow card. Mm. And there's other times then when it's replayed back, and you think, Okay, fair enough, it's maybe there's it's not there. My instinct on that tackle was, Oh, that's going to be a yellow card. That was my automatic instinct, I haven't seen it first time off. Um, and my son who <laughs> was watching the game with me he said, oh, No, sure, it looked all right. And then he, when he saw it back, he went, oh, yeah, there is contact to the head, and that's the way he's looking at it. I mean, um, if he's playing. It's how you react to immediately to it. And then whenever you see it back, you can have your then you have your different reactions to it. But I think immediately for me it, it was a yellow card. And as you say, mega is small, but just given the fact that he was going down, doesn't matter. The other player, yes, I think he had the intention was and his his two arms were out to wrap him, but they still there was still contact with the head. So therefore yeah. by the law by the letter of the law, it's a it's a yellow card at least. Mm-hmm. A, a penalty at least, if not a yellow card. Mm-hmm. It
0: seems since the captain's challenge men we've talked about, like obviously we're talking about these rules, but it seems like we're talking about refereeing decisions more than ever. And as Donald says, I just don't know anymore. It just seems like there's more confusion over what what exactly the rules are, or what is a yellow card and what's not, and and the difference in how this is being interpreted game to game even.
2: Well, that's the there's... thing. It's the exasperation of it for fans and players alike, I think. like, And it's been exacerbated by the captain's challenge because what you're seeing with the captain's challenge is not a TMO saying, Oh, maybe look at that. And then whether it is, or it isn't, you're getting the officiating team's opinion. Whereas now essentially what you're getting is more of the player's opinion. So the players are saying, telling the officials what's dangerous, or what they view to be dangerous. And that's the most important thing because they're the ones putting their bodies on the line. It's just another sort of added complication of the captain's challenge that you're now having this, confirmation, I suppose, that the players aren't
1: happy with the process of it either. Jonathan's right that, and, and, and that's a big positive from it. It's, it's, it's the players that are making the identification of of what's foul play or dangerous or whatever. The other downside to it is the game is now stopping more and more. I mean, if you were to put a stopwatch on a game and don't stop it when the referee, when the penalties and all those, those things happen and actually find out how, how long they're playing or how long they're actually on the pitch for, it's it's getting ridiculous and it's slowing the game down and it's not making it the spectacle that you want, want it to be. Player safety taken into view, of course, but I just think it's, it's it has slowed the game down even more. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's two variations that do not need to be introduced to our game next year. It's the captain's challenge and the the substitution for the red card.
0: Well, we'll see what we'll see what happens with them. But what we do know is uh, Ian Madigan loves uh, big moments in Scotland, and uh, another one for him on Saturday. Uh, Richard, just obviously not uh, quite as uh, meaningful as his last one. But um, you wouldn't have known that at the time to see his reaction and the players' reaction around him. Um, it was just a, a lovely way for him and for Ulster to to end the season. And while it was ultimately meaningless. It wasn't meaningless to them, certainly.
1: No, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, we've, we've heard about the Rain- Rainbow Cup and, uh, and even Dan McFarn admitted afterwards that it, 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 it wasn't much fun. Um, it was a meaningless game, yes, but from Ulster's point of view, it was a game they had to win. I think, I think, it, was, I think it was a must-win game for them. They'd had that bad run of, of results and summer's a long time and to finish the campaign off, with, a, with an exciting and entertaining game of rugby where two teams were played in went out and threw the ball about and, and, and produced a, a dramatic game, if you like, with a penalty to, to win it, like like in Edinburgh the last time when they were playing in a, a Pro 14 playoff, I think it was huge for Ulster. I'm not going to use the word monkey off the bank because Dan McFarland doesn't like that anyway. Um, but, you know, they go into the summer on a high with a win, a narrow win, which had a bit of drama to it. Most of the players put their hands up and I think that's important as they look to build and progress into next year. It was a good way to end the season. And I mean, the Rainbow Cup was what it was. COVID affected and all the rest of it. And, it'll be, and I hope that Benetton actually go on in the final in Italy. It'll be a great boost for Italian rugby. Yeah. Um, it'll be strange to see Benetton in it, given the fact that they didn't do anything during the regular season. But but that's rugby for you. And I think it, I just think it'll be good for Italian rugby. Yeah, no, absolutely, certainly will. So there was a
0: period in that game, Jonathan, where Ulster scored uh, five tries, 31 unanswered points. If we're looking back now at at the season as a whole, just where does that um, that period of play rate in terms of Ulster's overall performance?
2: Yeah, they played well. It was some fairly slick handling and some well-put-together moves. Like Madigan, I thought, in that first half ran things well. Another decent enough performance from Shanahan, getting in, getting in support. Hume was playing well. McCluskey was playing well. Yes, yeah, so they, like they put together some good stuff. It's obviously under the circumstances of an end of season meaningless game. Like it's you know that thing about the tea bag. You only find out how good it is when you put it in hot water. So it's stress testing this these things in more heard. strenuous situations than you have in a Rainbow Cup game in June.
1: I'm gonna try one of the coffee bags, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that a phrase? I've never heard that before. I like it this Yeah, it is. Yeah. you've
2: never heard that before.
0: No, what does it go again?
2: <laughs> you only find out how good a tea bag is when you put it in hot water.
0: Oh, very good.
2: Very. It's good. a very It's a very common phrase. Or sorry, I thought it was a very common no, phrase.
0: There you go. I, I, I've lived a sheltered life, John. So the rainbow cup was lukewarm at best. Um, not even. But uh, if we look at the some of the players that. Dan was talking about after the game, who had played their, their last match for Ulster on Saturday. Adam McBurney scored uh, his last try for Ulster uh, against the team he's moving to. And then you've Kyle McCall, Aldi Matthews and Matt Faddis all played. Uh, Louis Ludic didn't, didn't get on, but he's leaving as well. So Stuart uh, Martin has a couple of questions about this one. First of all, he says, four players were given a last hurrah, so that's those guys minus Ludic, on Saturday before they depart. Was this justified? Or should game time uh, have been given to those who will be expected to fill their places next season? You can see what he's saying. If Oster, if this was a, a bit of a meaningless game, should Ulster not have been looking, looking ahead and giving game time to the guys who, who, might, uh, who might go on? Or is it that these guys have given so much
1: service for Ulster and they deserved it? They deserved one last go? I suppose a lot of the guys who would have maybe been in line to get a bit of a, a run out, uh, looking ahead to the future. They've been involved with the Irish under-20s and stuff anyway, so that, that they've been playing, I mean, they're playing rugby. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, this was a meaningless game, but it was also, as I said, it, it was important that Ulster finished the season with a win just to end that. because if they, they would have ended up was a five in a row, and that hasn't happened for a long time, and then mm. you go into your first game next season, that would have been maybe six, in a, six defeats in a row, so... Jonathan and I, you'll remember, we had some debates over what he would pick for some of the Rainbow Cup games this season. And then when he announced his team, he obviously had been listening to the podcast and went completely the opposite way of what we had thought he might do, you know. We did maybe think the Rainbow Cup was a chance to give a few guys game time. And he did do that um, throughout the competition at some point. But I think the selections were right last week. And it was, I mean, we would have loved to have seen Marcel could get in the last game for Ulster on Saturday. Instead, he goes out, Plays his first game for the Bulls and scores a try in his debut, you know. So um, that's rugby. But no, I think the decision was right. Uh, Ulster had to win that game on on on, on Saturday, and um, and they and they delivered. And I think it puts them in good stead for the season ahead.
0: Of those departures, then those five will not include Marcel Kedzierski in this because uh, he would, uh, I guess, may win this one. But uh, of those departures, which one will Ulster miss most? Stuart Martin asked. So
2: like and if you're just talking about the 23 or the impact upon the 23 then it's probably it's probably Matthewson mm-hmm. because McCall as we know hadn't played since Connaught Fares sort of looked like he was being phased out from that sort of first week second week of January. Ludic we know hasn't played since November mcBurney hasn't played or hadn't played in a long time basically since it was known that he was leaving uh, whereas Matthewson has been I suppose, in Ulster's twenty-three, like we've seen Nathan Doe play, we've seen Shannon play, but like Mathieson was in the match day twenty-three, whereas by the time of their departure, those other guys, those other guys weren't. All things being equal, I think the premise on which Ulster signed Mathieson last year probably is still there. Now yeah, he's had a few injuries; he hasn't played as much as he would have wanted. But that desire to have that experience in a key position yeah. for whenever Cooney's not there, albeit they were expecting Cooney to be absent more with Ireland, like I think that is still there, but those types of players, those types of signings, experienced players, experienced imports that aren't in your starting fifteen, that aren't in your match day twenty-three sometimes are probably luxuries that can't be afforded anymore. No,
1: yeah. Funny. And I think Matthewson came in and, and I mean he, he was signed for a particular reason. A bit like Ian Maligan I suppose were that they were signed for particular reasons at that time. And and he delivered on what he had to do for for his time here. I suppose maybe maybe disappointingly didn't deliver in the Leicester game and and in the Rainbow Cup when we expected him to and when we needed him to perhaps. And Kai McCall, I mean, I mean, you feel for Kai McCall A couple of seasons ago, there was so much promise there, and then the injuries put him back, and it was it was disappointing to see him going backwards, if you like. Adam McBurney, I think one of those players that has shown fast improvement, and you can understand there's reasons maybe why he's decided to to go elsewhere. But um, and Lewis Ludic, I mean, what a great servant to the game! I'm sure you get. I mean, I know you guys have discussed him before. I'm not mm. going to repeat all that. But what a great servant he has been for Ulster for seven seasons. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It really, like, it really just felt that
2: hamstring injury was it over in Claremont? Um, did for uh, did for Kyle McCall there because like. Yeah. I know it was a few years ago but he was making really good progress and then that was just sort of the start of a string of injuries and when he first sort of came onto the scene you were thinking the point of difference was going to be his athleticism around the park is um I suppose the explosiveness but when you do that much damage to a hamstring it's it's difficult to get that yeah. back
1: you know and I, I mean I think I think he was in the age of of certainly Irish Irish selection of at one stage, you know, um, which is, it's a real shame to see him to see him go on now, to be fair. But the financial side of things also plays his part. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do we know where, obviously, Adam McBurney is uh, going to Edinburgh. Do we know where any of the, the other, Louis Liddick's retiring? Do we know where the other guys are going?
2: Matthewson's going back to Australia. I don't know whether he plans to play on there or not. Like, his family have been in Australia the whole time that he's been in Ireland. He's spoken about that before with us. And I uh, know we've talked about it on the podcast of just the... The difficulty there of that being in the pandemic and sort of being here by himself. I, I don't know what Mad plans are.
1: I suppose other clubs are in the same situation where they're they're having to watch their budgets and and things at the moment. Um, and it might be difficult for some players to find mm-hmm. another club. Difficult times. Do we yeah. know? Is there is there anybody else? I know
0: I've sort of pinpointed those six as the they're the six senior players leaving anyway. Is there any? Uh, academy ones or anything that they uh, that are are heading out this summer, do we know?
2: Yeah, they'll be the usual sort of players that just don't get their don't get bumped up from academy deals on the development deals. So we think Bruce Houston is one of them. I think Azar Allison was talked about as it, being one of them as well.
0: That's leaving, I, yeah. I thought Azar Allison was uh, one of the
2: sort of
1: highest rated at, rated at
2: this stage. I suppose just it's like all of these underage things, they're difficult enough to predict, and then yeah.
1: And the academy, I mean, it can be very cutthroat in there now. And, I mean, you look at the Ulster Academy and you look at the other academies and you've got to look at where these guys fit into the Irish setup to a degree as well. Yes, Mm -hmm. the the provinces need to have players coming through um, to support when there's injuries and and, and various um, events. But it has become probably more cutthroat than ever. Maybe we'll see a few of them heading over to Eileen with Kieran Campbell, you know. yeah. maybe. Um, You never know. You never know. Sorry. We'll see maybe one or two here and there.
2: Hayden hides the way back to Harlequins as well. So,
1: so on um, my club, <laughs> your club, my club over here, who are in a playoff, a Premiership playoff coming up. <laughs> 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 our, our,
0: our listeners, Ian and Stephen, will love that one. <laughs> Jump on any bandwagon, going Richard. Um, oh,
1: totally absolutely
0: <laughs> on, on this sort of line then we have a couple of questions asking about players who may break through get more game time next season and uh, on the, the Ulster players to look out for in the under 26 nations. So any Ulster players around that level that you think we can, we can watch out for in this summer's tournament and then next season those are James Bradley and Jack Fogarty wanted to know Jack Fogarty with some kind words but podcast too always appreciate it. thank you, Jack.
2: If I think if we see a James Humphreys, Nathan Doak halfback partnership, I think everyone's going to be everyone else is going to be keen to see that. A bit of a throwback team sheet there that we had against uh, <laughs> or for the under 20s in the week. again. it'd be cool to see that. I think in a, in the Six Nations. Ruben Crawlers has been training with the squad. I'd be keen to see him just having seen so little of him this year. Obviously, just because of because of the COVID situation. Like I think he's played one or two A games, maybe. As the only rugby he's had since, oh, sorry, and since until being involved with the under twenties, those A games were his only games since the schools cup semi final. Obviously, he would have been playing club rugby under ordinary circumstances, and um, so be interesting to see if he can make an impact on that tournament. If like looking ahead the next year, it ties into that conversation that we've had. Like, I don't think it's a case of you know, there's some sure thing that's coming through that everybody's just waiting to be. Of the right age to make an impact in the Pro Bowl 14, it's looking at where there's gaps in the squad. So you talk about those guys that have left, Matthewson's gone. Where do his minutes go? So you'd want to see Nathan Doak taking those minutes rather than them all going to Shanahan. You look at Loosehead, fair enough, Kyle McCall didn't play that often, but does that, that should mean that we see more of Callum Reed? Marcel's minutes are going to go to Timoney and then Nakawara obviously coming in to take some of those backroom minutes but you would like to think that we'll see more of David McCann next season Um, Fade's minutes you know going to Mark or Sexton so it's not like I know like people want to hear of somebody that they haven't seen play for the senior team or somebody that they haven't heard of but like if you haven't heard of them, they're not going to be playing for Ulster next year. Because if you follow the academy in any way, you've heard of these guys before they make their debut. Like, it's they're not plucked out of obscurity.
0: But it could be an exciting so, season, you say, with well, those budget constraints, a smaller squad. It could be a very big season for some of those guys you've mentioned there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, the Ireland tour being when it is means that the players that are on Ireland duty are going to be starting pre-season later, which means that, as we've seen in previous seasons... Means that they're highly likely to miss those first rounds of the season. Ian Henderson, even more so, because Ian Henderson isn't going to be starting a summer holidays until the 8th of August.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned props there, Jonathan. And I mean, I, I'm not obviously as close to things there now as I used to be. But I mean, is George uh, Saunderson one to be looking out for down the line? I think
2: like those guys that are not in the academy, but that are in. Provincial talent squads, national talent squads and involved in the under-20s are guys that, that's where the part of the curiosity is going to come with the squad announcement on Thursday. Like, where are those guys in relation to players that are in the academies? Because, do you know what I mean? Like, we've seen guys who were on sub-academy contracts make an impact in recent years. Ethan McElroy being a recent example under Dan McFarland, Ben Moxham. So, not being in the academy at this stage isn't the death knell for these guys' careers. So, if at under 20 level they're showing something against boys that are in the academy, we know that it can be a fluid situation. So, it's definitely something to watch out for over, I suppose, the next two months with the six, you know, as we said, Sixth nation squad announced on Thursday and then the first game being the 19th of June. And then, so, just the other one, obviously, another one he has been involved in the under-20s is Tom Stewart, you know, with Adam McBurney not being there. If Rob Herring yes. plays for Ireland and misses the start of the season, you know, you could have John Andrew, Brad Roberts, and Tom Stewart. I anyway, know Tom Stewart's obviously had problems with injuries. He's somebody that's been touted for a while, but as the only three hookers you have. So, he's somebody that, again, just as we've said, Gareth, you know, it's looking at those where there are, where the squad is thinner than it has been in previous years, because that's largely where somebody's going to get their chance if they can impress in training. Because yeah. we've we've all heard and from other people and from Dan himself, how much what you're doing in training counts for getting those chances. That's why you see guys like McElroy um getting the nod ahead of players who were more highly tied whenever academy places were being given out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, an exciting season ahead on uh, from that point of view, hopefully. But the one just gone, not much of a season review. This, will, you'll have noticed, we haven't really been delving back too much because it feels like we've been concluding the season for months at this stage. And uh, if there is any game in particular you would like... Uh, to look back on. You can just go back and listen to that episode. Um, But what we will do to look back is use Donald's question. He wants to just know what were your particular highlights of the season and why? From October rather than from August. He did say the extended season. So I assume he, yeah, will allow you from August. So effectively the end of last season as well, yeah. Which will allow you Madigan's first Edinburgh heroics and things.
2: Well, that's obviously like the biggest win of the season, like, or sorry, of the time period. (laughs) It was last season. Um, And I suppose at the time you were looking at it and thinking that they'd maybe unlocked something in terms of winning those big knockout games. And obviously I suppose it didn't go particularly well for them this season in the big games (laughs) and at the end of last season, the big games. So perhaps not, but like not to be a broken record, but I do think that the most positive thing to come from this season is what we've talked about before, it's the emergence of, or not the emergence, it's the passage of players like James Hume, Mike Lowry, Nick Timoney going from emerging young players to central parts of the squad. Like that's been the biggest improvement that Ulster have made over the past, well, like, yeah, 49 weeks, I suppose, is what their season has been in the end, including preseason training. So, for those young players to come out of the academy in the last four or five years, and now at 22, 23, 25, be key members of the squad moving, or key members of the first 15 moving forward is the biggest positive. And I suppose the key is seeing more players make that jump in the next year, two years to join them. So that instead of having those, However, many guys it is, you've got, you know, say Sexton or McElroy establishes themselves on the wing. Balakoon makes the jump into being one of those players to being an Irish international. Eric O'Sullivan and Tom O'Toole go from being on the fringes of the international setup to, I suppose, being, well, really being Ulster starting props, you know. That's how Ulster are going to overhaul their team because we're not going to see the the kind of splurge that we had a decade ago where you've got three World Cup winners arriving in quick succession.
1: Yeah, yeah agreed with, with that synopsis. Jonathan, that would be, having watched it from the armchair a lot of the time this year, It's been, it's been Ulster's progress. That, um, the young players and those who have been there for a wee while establishing themselves a bit more, I suppose from highlights, was it Mike? Larry's try against Connacht maybe was one of the standout moments, and the way that they turned the game around at Northampton, and um, the Challenge Cup, I suppose. Then the disappointment at Leicester, and I suppose one of the headaches for me was going to the European Cup final this year, which was yeah. unusual. Um, even the Challenge Cup final, um, just because I was able to, but it was great to be in a, be in Twickenham, and there were only ten thousand fans, but it was just, it was just great to enjoy that. Um, again and we're looking forward to that sort of thing coming back next year but um, also have made decent progress this year I know there's no trophy at the end of it again and, and but then we're used saying that um, but I think expectations are not overly high for next year but they'll be, they'll be, they've raised the bar a wee bit and, um, and I think Dan McFarland is still the man to, to guide them to some success Absolutely, no doubt. We do have a question about that from Stephen McCormick. Richard, uh,
0: Dan's new contract, which we did discuss in an episode at the time that people can go back and listen to if they want. We discussed that at length. I didn't think you were on that week, Richard. So Stephen just says, uh, Dan's special. Discuss and explain why, if you agree. What do you think, (laughs)
1: Richard? Dan's a special one. Yeah, Dan, (laughs) (laughs) there is, Dan has come in and, he came in after a difficult time. The Ulster had gone through a difficult patch and, and everybody knows. I'm not going to go over all that again, but he came in at a time when they just needed a wee bit of focus and going forwardness. And, and Dan came in with his, if he has a book or whatever it has, he has a, a, a big file, what he wants to do. And he got everybody onto the, the pages that he wanted them to be on. He has given players opportunity who have deserved it. As Jonathan alluded to there, you know, if, if players are really showing up and training, he gives them opportunities um and what I like about Dan is he's always honest now sometimes we do find him the glass remember when he first came we kind of thought the glass was kind of half full half empty when you were talking to him there was times you would have come off after a big win and you would have expected Dan to be really upbeat about things and he wasn't and that's because he was seeing things that maybe we didn't quite see but he's always honest with his assessments afterwards and everything else and yeah he is a special he's a special type of guy and uh, I mean, his last press conference there, post-match Edinburgh, he said he would miss us all. And I think he will miss us all over <laughs> over the period um, in the summer. And you know what? I mean, I was at the the Harlequins game, and he had just done his BT interview, and Robin, the media officer, brought him down to speak to me. And that was nice. I mean, he didn't have to do that, but he, but he made time and, and inquired how things were and all the rest of it. And I'm sure his mind was thinking about, how are we going to win this Challenge Cup game? Yeah. Um, but I think he has—he has got everybody on the right page. He gives people opportunities that they deserve, and he's—he's—he's um, he's, he's his own man.
0: Well, hopefully he is uh, the man who will bring silverware back to back to Ulster, uh, even if it's not this season. So, um, a couple more quick ones before we go. Well, we can't—we uh, can't leave the season without one last word for for Dwayne Peel. John, we discussed the players here leaving. Uh, Dwayne's obviously leaving the the coaching staff, and we, we've discussed all about the reshuffle and everything that that has triggered. But um, be a loss nonetheless.
2: Yeah, I mean, Dan McFarland described him as his uh, as a right hand man on uh, on Saturday after the game, and I suppose gave a bit of insight into their relationship, bouncing things off each other, bouncing ideas of each other as guys that are both, relatively speaking, young coaches. So um, it'll definitely be a change to the dynamic of the the ticket and something that they'll uh, probably have to adjust to because I think, as we said last week, it has been quite settled, really, with the addition of Roddy Grant, I think, two seasons ago. Um, It has been a settled ticket, which is not what we've
0: been uh, used to at Ulster for the last number of years. Absolutely not. So what happens now... There's obviously Ireland under twenties as say, there's the Lions, there's the Ireland tour, uh Ireland tour to Dublin, um, which we will probably be back with a couple of uh podcasts. Tour for the Ulster Clash. Well, yeah, true. So what uh, what do we know about Ulster? When will when will Ulster be taken to the pitch again?
2: Yeah, well they're talking about having one friendly, maybe two friendlies before the season starts. Obviously they are I think they're getting five weeks off, I think, which is obviously at the end of uh a full year on the go, probably uh, probably well deserved at this stage. Um guys that may be involved with Ireland, which were sort of mentioned by Dan McFarland as the usual suspects, and then Kieran Treadwell, he mentioned as well, will be sticking around training until that Ireland squad's announced, which is announced the week starting the twenty first. Yeah, so obviously once guys are announced into that squad, they'll be down the week after preparing for Japan and USA. But They'll be keeping themselves taken over with Ulster until then, but they'll be the only ones. And then, yes, obviously Henderson going to uh, going to Jersey and soon enough for uh, for Lions camp. And then that'll be him out in South Africa until the start of August. So it's going to be, I suppose, a staggered finish to the season, which will produce a staggered start to next season for the squad. So people will be coming back in in dribs and drabs, depending on what else they've been up to this summer.
0: Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, to the start of next season, even though there's plenty of rugby between now and then anyway. But uh, it's not quite the same when it's not Ulster. But that is us for for this season. So um, thank you very much, Richard, for uh, you've stepped up to the plate this season in our squad
1: rotation system, and um, uh, a mighty addition you are. I appreciate that, Gareth and Jonathan. It's been really, really good. I've enjoyed it. It's been good to chat. Um... Good to chat with people who know what they're talking about, and uh, I don't I think the highlight—the highlight—the <laughs> highlight from the podcast was getting the opportunity to call Michael the Grim Reaper. You know uh, <laughs> that—that's that, the standout moment for me <laughs> this year. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> Thanks very much, guys.
0: Was editing that—that was—I've uh, never been in tears laughing editing the podcast before, but that was pretty close Jonathan, another season in the can, We're veterans at this stage.
2: That's it. That was all you, all you had to say about my contribution. You were here. <laughs>
0: Uh, but yeah, you, uh, you get the big bucks for this. You don't need a personal thank you.
2: That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> John, you know I value your contribution. But we have less than a minute to go on the Zoom call, so uh, ending the season as we end every week in a hurry to get off before we're cut off. But look, uh, Richard Boland, uh, Jonathan Bradley, and myself, thank you all very much for listening, and have a great you